1: Hello, welcome to Rational Security, the Worst Way to Die edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, Seasonal Allergy sufferer. Is are your eyes
2: killing you today?
1: No. Really? No, No.
2: mine was the tree pollen two weeks ago.
3: Yeah. Well everybody's
2: got their thing.
3: It's spring in Washington. Spring is nigh. Uh, I'm allergic to my Fitbit. Are you? Yeah, my skin is broken out. Oh. Yeah. Ooh, that's terrible. Yeah. It's a blow to your high
2: tech identity. But
3: my eyes are fine. I think
1: I think you need to write into the Fitbit people. Oh, they've gotten a lot of complaints rashers. about the band. Have they really? Yeah, a lot of people have skin sensitivity. <laughs> another reason, I'm not getting a Fitbit. <laughs> <laughs> the in
2: perfect case excuse. You, just in
1: case I need another.
2: You delicate skin. I know,
1: I know. Uh, I am joined as always by my good friends Ben Woodis. Hello, Ben. Hey. Tamara Kaufman with us. Hello, tomorrow.
2: Hello, my Fitbit is fine, thank you. Your Fitbit,
1: how, how is your Fitbit? <laughs> <laughs> How's your Fitbit? And uh, once again, our good friend Jonathan Roush, who has stumbled into our studio Quite literally walked yes. in at
4: the wrong moment.
1: <laughs> you, you, are, you are the Agnes Moorhead of rational security. You're like in every fifth episode. She Wasn't she the mother on Bewitched?
2: Yes.
3: Yeah, see, there you go. We're going to have to have random appearances by Jonathan Rauch. We
2: dragoon him. you.
3: Yeah, we
2: shanghai We you.
1: Yeah, and we're we, not going to tell listeners when you're coming. It's going to be like a surprise. Is he here today? Is he here today? Where? I rarely well, know myself. Right.
4: Where am I? The secret. What am I doing here? What your listeners probably should not be aware of is that if they walk down the hall at the wrong moment, they could be dragooned That's on true. rational security. That's true. It's a good
2: thing we restrict access to the eighth floor <laughs> here at the Brookings <laughs> Institution.
3: We could just have guys coming in off the street or SAIS students coming in <laughs> off the street.
1: Which is worse. Uh, All right, this week on the show, uh, the FBI rules out terrorism in the awful train crash in Pennsylvania, but why are we so quick these days to question whether every accident was caused by terrorists? Congress is poised to pass new legislation on surveillance. And what does a new report on Iranian hackers tell us about the standards of intelligence in the era of cyber war? Plus, in our object lessons, keeping with our ways to die thing, we go to the movies with a look at a new film by Ethan Hawke on drones, and then the death in North Korea by very, very big firing squad. Um, Tomorrow, why don't you start us out with your wordplay this week?
2: Okay, so, um, you know, we had a, a horrifically nasty Amtrak train crash uh, on, the, on the Northeast Corridor, which is the most heavily traveled and the only profitable part of the Amtrak network, um, as of right now, there have been six fatalities and uh, it gets up to seven, seven, up seven there, now, yeah. and uh, and dozens of people injured, apparently very high speed. What struck me about this I, um, is not that we had another train crash, um, but what struck me about this was how quickly the, uh, the news wires turned from the fact of the train crash to the question of whether the train crash was due to terrorism. And... It seems to me, in this instance and in a number of other instances I I can think of over the last months, that when you have something happen, a a truck carrying hazardous materials overturns on the highway, a train crash, a bus crash, reporters run to the FBI and say, was this terrorism? And the FBI has to immediately say, we have no evidence. (laughs) Um, Boy, it looks like an accident. And, you know, look, our national infrastructure is... Crumbling, and that certainly includes the underfunded Amtrak. Um, And accidents happen every day, but we seem to need this instant reassurance, Uh, and uh, and the FBI feels compelled to provide it, and the reporters feel compelled to ask the question and get it answered. And it and so it really struck me in this case because um, there was absolutely no reason to believe that this was anything other than a horrible, horrible train accident. Um, and no claims of responsibility and nothing like that. And it's just a marker to me of how sensitive we still are to a threat that we feel is pervasive and how much we seem to measure every bad thing that happens against this risk, Um, even though terrorism always has been uh, and remains today a fringe phenomenon. Uh, And what's so scary about it, of course, is that it is fringe and you don't know where it's going to strike and it's random. Um, But the fact that we continually go to this whenever something bad happens says to me something about our our sense of vulnerability and our lack of resilience.
1: I think it also says something about, speaking just as a journalist here, about the press's desire to go to that fringy, awful, scary thing, right? I mean, I think one reason why reporters call the FBI and say, was this terrorism? is because wouldn't you like to be the first one to tweet the FBI has found a link to terrorism in the Amtrak crowd. Uh, So
3: I actually disagree with you both completely on this. I think this is a completely rational response on both the part of the press and on the part of the bureau. And it's exactly the same response as when you're feeling ill in some regard. You go to a doctor and the first thing they do is they exclude the worst possibility and then they exclude the second worst possibility and they winnow it down to the fact that you've got a cold you know if you go in there with a big hacking cough they might take a chest x-ray not because they believe you have lung cancer but because they want to exclude lung cancer and it seems to me that that's exactly what the press is doing in these instances and it's valuable because if you don't know that it's not terrorism you have to shape a policy on the possibility that it is. And if, if you imagine for a minute that this was a terrorist incident, we would be having a completely different conversation today than we, than we are. Among other things, I would have spent my day thinking about it. Um, sure, and, and surely the press's job is to relieve me
1: of that. <laughs> of that. <laughs> oh, oh, how oh. wrong you are.
3: You are not so recently
1: a defrocked journalist if you've forgotten what our real <laughs> job is, is to scare the shit out of you. Right, so that's.
2: I mean, I think that's a very interesting angle on it, Shane. That the media looks for the most exciting, most scary element of the story, and they're going to play that up. Uh, But Ben, it's not rational. It's not rational at all. And I'm, you know, it's a diversion of resources for the FBI that every time, you know, some truck overturns, they have to deal with fielding calls about whether or not it's terrorism. And it's not rational for the public when 99.9% of the time it's not terrorism well, for them to immediately fear that it's terrorism and seek reassurance. But That's ha- not rational. But
3: hang on a second. No, no I, I, The FBI is fielding calls. The FBI fields calls because they field calls when people call them. And, you know, journalists ask them things. They, they have to decide whether to answer. The FBI, when something big goes boom, the FBI is going to exclude investigate sufficiently to figure out whether there's something they need to investigate whenever something really bad happens. When a plane crashes you verify that you don't have reason to investigate it as a criminal act. When the BP oil spill happens you make sure that it's properly within the EPA's jurisdiction not within the FBI's jurisdiction. So the journalists know that and they're trying to figure out, hey, what do we, uh, you know, do we look overseas for a possible war that this is going to produce? Do we look at two local police as a kind of, you know, like it's a big traffic accident? Um, and I just think that's a completely rational and reasonable response on the press's part. Jonathan, what do you think, Jonathan? Jonathan, be the voice of reason here, please. Settle this marital dispute.
4: (laughs) I'd like to say, as John McLaughlin used to, you're all wrong, but you're all right, unfortunately. So a media point and a bigger point. The media point is that in every newsroom in the country, and I used to work in one, in a post 9-11 environment, any editor worth his or her salt is going to say to the journalist, so was it terrorism? Make a call and find out. Because if it was, it's a different story. So they make the call. They find out the FBI should be prepared to handle that. In fact, it could put out a simple two-sentence statement to that effect, and it's done. And then once the journalists find out it's not terrorism, what they ought to do is move on and not suggest that it might have been terrorism. And Tammy, I haven't been reading a lot of the media on this, but what I have seen does not, in fact, dangle the possibility of terrorism. It's been quite responsible and not sort of led with does not appear to be terrorism so on the whole I'd say we're getting this one kind of right but here's why you're all right there's a new book coming out by John Mueller of Ohio State I think it's called policing terrorism and it's on the ridiculous excesses that policy has gone to to prevent terrorism which by any cost-benefit calculation that is remotely rational is orders of magnitude too long. It turns out that after 9 one people decided the world was a very dangerous place, much more dangerous than it really is, and never changed their minds about it, despite the fact that there has not been a 9 one So, alas, Tammy, you're right. This isn't a problem about calling the FBI, though. This is a problem about a public which has become oversensitized to terrorism.
2: Is this kind of like kids falling into buckets of water? <laughs> Like or our, cats
4: on hot stoves?
2: <laughs> no, no, like I what? mean our. <laughs> uh, <you're>, you've <laughs> <I've> lost <laughs> I
1: everywhere else I'm, <laughs> now I'm missing one. these similes. <laughs> no,
2: the, the whole hypersensitivity we have as a society to the potential for child injury and the ridiculous oh, lengths oh, that see. we yeah. go to on <clears throat> protecting children from falling cabinets.
3: From <clears throat> crawling into chairs. Sh- should I tell that. the story about the, the, uh, uh, the, the labor and delivery nurse? Is this like the Brist joke? No, this is not a brist okay. joke. It's actually uh, things always spin out of control when I'm on the show. <laughs> You're know. you okay, a terrible so, influence. So when, right. when Tammy and when 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 Tammy was pregnant with our our, our oldest child, um, we had to go to child uh, uh, bearing and infant CPR classes. The infant CPR turned out to be a, a giant sales job of child safety products. Um, oh, which okay. the basic message was we came to call it the How to Kill Your Baby class because um, it was just one nightmare scenario after another and the product you absolutely needed to protect you from that incident. And um, finally, this, this, this uh, very lovely labor and delivery nurse who was doing this class uh, showed us the uh, toilet seat lock to prevent the baby from drowning in the toilet. At this point, we were probably two and a half, three hours into this thing, and I—I I think Tammy will admit I had been pretty good up to that <laughs> You'd point.
2: You'd restrained yourself very
3: well. I just lost it, and I—I I said to her, "Look, how many babies in the United States died last year by drowning in the toilet?" And there's this none long, because they all use toilet. Light. And there was <laughs> this long pause where every woman, every eight month. Pregnant woman in the room looked daggers at me as though you know I was the reason that yes. there were child safety problems because I was not taking toilet seat locks seriously oh. enough. Um, so that's uh, rational security. <laughs> well, I demand
4: to know how many of your children are still alive. <laughs> uh, you
3: know, neither of our kids has drowned in the toilet. <laughs> yet. So,
4: yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, Tammy, there's a famous Harvard psychologist named Steven Pinker who's actually tried to figure out why people insist on believing the world is so much dangerous, more dangerous than it is. Like, for example, every year the crime rate goes down. It's much lower than it was 20 years ago, yet every year people think the crime rate is going up. And he's actually trying to figure this out. And part of it is what's called the availability heuristic. If something sticks in your mind, if it makes a big impression on you, some reptile part of your brain decides it's very likely. Even if it's extremely unlikely, Americans are more likely to be killed in bathtub accidents than by terrorism by far. They're more likely to be killed by falling furniture. They may even than be more Al-Qaeda likely to be killed
2: than by toilet bowl accidents than terrorism.
4: Well, that's true. I mean, maybe where, reporters where should the bathtub call locks? the FBI and say, was this a derailment due to a toilet accident? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, who knows? It may be, it may not be, falling furniture, is. perhaps? Um, uh, I don't think I have, I, no, I don't have anything else to add on that.
3: This year, it is safer to fly in the United States than to stay home. Really? Whoa. We, get, we need to go get in a plane right now. Come on. <laughs> Let's go. Come
1: on. Why, why, why are we sitting here? Where
3: are we going? All kinds of household accidents,
1: you know, that you're really safe from on airplanes. Houses and hospitals are dangerous places. Um, okay, Ben, your wordplay involves some bill. Yeah, so as
3: we speak right now, the House of Representatives is either passing or getting ready to pass the USA Freedom Act, which is, um, uh, this is I, I guess my wordplay this week is the USA Freedom Act, all God knows how many hundreds of pages you of it. You
1: sound like you have Mel Gibson yelling. Freedom!
3: Yeah. So the USA Freedom Act is um, an attempt to both not allow the total disappearing in a puff of smoke of the 215 program before the end of the month, but it is also uh, complies with the president's wishes to end that program and replace it with one in which the uh, the FBI NSA would get data. From the companies in response to specific phone, phone records, phone, talking about. phone records, rather than collecting a giant database of it on their own. It's a compromise between the intelligence community and the civil libertarians, both of whom, by and large, support it with reservations. Uh, and it passed a version of it passed uh, almost passed the Senate last year, but got hung up. And there is a real question as to whether. Uh, Senate Republicans are going to let this version pass now or whether they are going to try to push for, even in the wake of last week's uh, Second Circuit ruling, a clean bill. So this is a fateful moment uh, for the future of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and associated programs. And so far it is following very much the script that I suggested on at the, the Beer Summit last week but it's it's tenuous and it's really going to be an interesting few weeks to watch where this goes
4: so why is mitch mcconnell having a problem with this bill
3: well so it's a really interesting question i you know maybe the answer is that he's not conservative enough because the really hardcore conservatives you know mike lee uh... and a lot of the house republicans are you know In that zone where they kind of meet up with the left civil libertarians, and that's actually the core of support for this. But it's a very weird constellation of forces. It's the left civil libertarians, the right libertarians, and the Obama administration are and the sort of a lot of some some security, sort of centrist security hawks are behind this bill, all for very, very different reasons. On the other hand, Senate conservatives who want to not roll back anything related to NSA authorities are against it even if that means that those same authorities disappear in a puff of smoke at the end of the month.
2: Yeah that really seems like making the perfect the enemy of the good. How do they justify that?
3: Actually it's making the imperfect the enemy of the good because under last week's opinion this program's not legal anyway and so if you insist on a clean reauthorization what you're insisting on is a great deal of litigation uncertainty if it passes, which it probably can't, or a great deal of, um, or the program just disappearing altogether. And so I think it really is an example of a relatively small number of Senate Republicans. Uh, The bill was only two votes from going to a vote last year. A relatively small number of uh, of Senate Republicans um, in their zeal to be as, you know, against the civil liberties community as possible and as tough on terrorism as possible, kind of screwing the intelligence community. And um, so it's, it's a very weird dynamic, and I assume that two votes will flip at least. Um, but that may turn out to be a rash assumption.
1: And you've made this point before, and that's one I agree with, and it probably bears repeating here, that the big winner in all of this is actually the NSA. This is the only significant, really only, legislative change to foreign intelligence operations to have come out of the Snowden Lakes, period. And it involves a program that is of marginal value and utility that the NSA is not really going to be crying if it were to actually lose, which, P.S., it's not really going to
3: lose, because it's still going to have authorities to get the data that it needs. So I think that's right, assuming something like this passes. If this bill passes, it will go in the press as a big civil liberties win, and two years from now, we'll all look back and say, wow, the big winner was really, the big winner of this uh, you know, civil liberties victory was really NSA, because yeah. it institutionalized authorities, yes. and, <laughs> and it diverted attention away from the core authorities that NSA needs to protect, which is to say the 702 program and 12333 collection. Mm-hmm. And it sucked the air out of the reform balloon on this relatively marginal program. Right. And that's the way we will understand it if it passes. Now, if it doesn't pass, I think it's a little different because then you have, uh, first of all, 702 is coming up for reauthorization you know, at the end of... Uh, 2017. So there is another reauthorization bill to have a fight over, and this will then get then gets, um, you know, if 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 you send the message to the agency that we can't get these reauthorizations done, that puts much bigger programmatic activity genuinely at risk and on the table. But, but yeah, yeah, but I agree with you. If Congress passes this thing. The ACLU will, will issue a giant victory press release, but I do think in the, in, in the Jamil Jaffer's heart, he will know that he, they have played a big role in institutionalizing authorities.
1: Well, and to your point about 702, if we get 702 to... 702 is... 702, sorry, is what's often known as, uh, what's described as the PRISM program. That it's that the email program? It's collecting email and other data that's that meta- technology data. companies like. Not, well, no, content no, as it's, well. It's, it's,
3: it's, it's communications, content, mostly not email, mostly you know, Facebook messages, right. signals collection. And, it's on, I area, did, and so. what
1: it allows to do is the agency to go to a Google and say, give us the following, you know. As opposed to
4: phone records, which are up for authorization right now.
1: Correct, correct,
4: yeah. So, uh,
3: so and, 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 and so so it's, it's emails, chats, right. messaging, any messaging service that involves voice, Skype, it's stuff that involves content.
1: Right, and, and, and by far, the point I was going to make is, by far more valuable and productive for the intelligence community than 215. So mm-hmm. if there were, if, we were if, you, if, you, if we're two years from now, or what is it 2017, we're up for you know click, click, clicking down uh, to the last minutes of the 702 program, and they might lose it. NSA will go to the barricades over 702. Mm-hmm. Nobody's, fa- nobody's doing that for 215. It's an easy one to give up. 702, they would, they would make the argument, and they would probably be correct. They would be effectively if like, they'd be like losing an eye. It would be a huge hole and their intelligence-gathering capabilities. I mean, it's important to remember, too, that we had a debate about these authorities in 2007 and 2008. So if you're having another debate about the reauthorization of it, it is very much going to be in light of what Snowden revealed, not on the legitimacy of the law, as it was in the question of the 215 program, where there was the argument of, is this even legal under the statute? And I think the 702 debate would go much more to the question of, values and ethics and what kind of world do we want to live in than the 215 program, frankly, because it's bigger, it's broader. We already had a debate about it. We enshrined it in law. And then we found out all the things that it was doing, and we wonder, mm, are we still okay with
3: that? And it's the single largest contributor of all <coughs> intelligence programs to the president's daily brief. Right. There's there's no doubt, unlike 215, there's no real debate that it's hugely productive. Yeah.
1: All right. I'm going to go into my wordplay now. <clears throat> uh, my wordplay is actually, it's an old word with a new word. Uh, So back in April, and I think I may have talked about this in the podcast, uh, a cybersecurity company at a Silicon Valley called Norse teamed up with AEI, the think tank in Washington, to produce a very long and interesting report on uh, Iranian cyber warfare and cyber espionage efforts. Uh, And it was greeted with a fair amount of controversy, in part because the technical data on which the conclusions were based, a lot of cybersecurity experts looked at this and said that it was very thin, very thin. Uh, and that the data that Norse and AEI were using to draw their conclusions wasn't substantial enough to make the claims about Iran doing things like trying to hack into the power grid and other big control systems. Uh, I'm bringing this up again, uh, because I actually wrote another piece about this for the Daily Beast today, and there's this really sort of provocative section in the report which was co-authored by Fred Kagan at AEI, and this is a part that he actually wrote that I talked to him about this week where he, he takes on this whole question that is at the center of you know, trying to find out who is behind a hacking campaign and which nation state we're going to respond to and we're going to sanction is this question of attribution. And how can you definitively say it was North Korea that hacked Sony, or it was Iran that hacked the Sands Casino Company. And that's really important if as a matter of policy the United States is going to actually respond in kind or even militarily or economically to these kinds of attacks. And what Fred writes in, the, in this report is, we're entering into an era essentially where we can't, I'm paraphrasing here, we can't just have smoking gun evidence for all these things in order to make decisions. We're going to have to accept a sort of lower threshold of intelligence, in some cases for trying to make assessments about our strategy and the strategy of people who are trying to do bad things to us. And, you know, he wouldn't put it this way, but essentially he's saying, you know, you need to like lower your standards and lower the bar. A little bit with technical data, which is a hugely controversial proposition. So he's saying, like, if we
2: have a hunch that you did it, we're going to retaliate.
1: No, in fact, he's not saying he's saying more than a hunch, but also he's saying you wouldn't base retaliation on this kind of stuff that he's talking about.
2: You'll you'll attribute, but not retaliate. Well, you'll attribute,
1: but you'll also—it's a good question. You'll attribute, but you'll also say, well, it's not ironclad enough to actually like go to war over. But it's sort of circumstantial and suggestive, which I have to say. In the intelligence business, there's all kinds of information that gets added into the matrix that is not smoking gun, that is not definitive, that is not proving causality, and that kind of gets thrown into the yep. whole pot in the mix in the art and science of intelligence. Heretofore in cybersecurity, that has been sort of you know verboten because cybersecurity is ruled by experts who are technical experts and engineers who drill down on the very narrow points, which you have to have. But in comes this report, and Fred and this other company, sort of provocatively asserting that, you know what, we're in a new era of conflict, and we're not going to be able to make decisions if every single time we have to have 100% accurate attribution to the individual who pulled the trigger on the virus. So
3: there is a very live debate that inside the administration on this question, and, um, which tends to become a inter- set of international law questions. Once it's in the you know once the lawyers in the administration get it. but it has been an active subject of dispute and discussion within the interagency for you know sort of since the at least since the beginning of the Obama administration. And there is an excellent window on that discussion in uh, thanks to our friends at the Steptoe Cyber law podcast. Stuart Baker had a great conversation. I think it's last week just before, Maybe two weeks ago, um, with Mary DeRosa, who was the uh, legal counsel to the NSC, um, and who coordinated some of these discussions earlier in the administration, and the um, you know the all of the questions that you just pointed to: how strong does your attribution have to be? How public does your attribution have to be? And what? level of attack can properly trigger what level of response when is it a military when can it be a military response when can you do some countermeasures short of that all of these questions are genuinely in play um, and you know Mary has been out of government for a while now so that's the conversation has presumably advanced at least somewhat over the way she describes it but it's a complicated conversation. And I think what you're seeing in Fred Kagan's report is the sort of state of uh, flux that our attitudes toward this are, are in.
4: So this would not be a new problem, right? Because for many years, we've dealt with acts of terrorism where we're unsure of the attribution.
3: Correct. Although generally, acts of terrorism are not attributed to states. So they don't uh, at least not in the same way that cyber attacks can be. Like you don't say, well, if such and such terrorist group blows blows up the the we're going to attribute that to you know Syria or something. You sometimes do, but you really often do in the cyber arena. And then there's the question when with a terrorist attack, you often have the fact of the event is not really in dispute, um, and so you with with cyber attacks sometimes the events you're responding to they're not really public at all and so i think it's not it you know attribution is not a new problem but cyber does raise a set of attribution issues that are raises them both more often and more acutely than previous forms of attack tend to you know so,
2: i buy i buy the more often point but you know, thinking back to the 1970s and 1980s, there were all kinds of non state terrorist groups carrying out attacks, but the U.S. government did very often hold responsible, at least partly, states that gave training locations to those groups, gave money or weapons to those groups, or facilitated their activities, and did hold those states responsible. And sometimes those arguments for state responsibility could be pretty attenuated, but they were made for reasons of U.S. national interest and presumably based on some intelligence that wasn't a smoking gun. And uh, and sometimes the United States even retaliated uh, based on that logic. So I, I think that maybe the analogy is a little closer than, than you suggested.
3: Well, I mean, look, it is certainly true that attribution is not a new problem. And um, the question is... when when your means of attributing are largely technical and they're going to end up, and you're going to be able to disclose only a very small percentage of what you know. uh, A, how confident can you be, and we claim to be getting much better at attribution than we used to be. Um, But B, um, how do you convince people, even if you're right, that you're right. And so far, our way of doing that has been, you know, that Jim Comey has stood up and said, I, you know, I've never been sh- more sure of anything in, in my professional life. And, you know, I stake my credibility on this. And that that was good enough for most people in the North Korea context, uh, not for everybody, but for most people. Um, and it's a, it, I do think it's a real problem. And one of the questions that's a real problem is is the one that you describe here, which is how you – know, how, how, where is the threshold of certainty, and is it the same as with a terrorist attack, or is it somehow lower?
1: And ironically, you talk about Comey, one of the companies that was pushing back the hardest against the FBI's assertions that it was North Korea was Norse, saying it's not enough to just show us internet protocol addresses to which you think you've traced back a hack and this Iran address is largely based on that kind of data. But it's the cumulative kind of scale of it that you look at and you say, you know, maybe some of these scans that we're seeing coming from Iran against what are made to look like targets that hackers would be interested in, maybe some of those are coming from Russia, people routing through Iran, but some significant percentage of them surely are coming from Iran, and surely that it means that some culpability attaches to the regime for this activity. You know, and what I find other, also interesting about this, this is kind of a last point, is that this is intelligence that is being generated by private actors? It's, these are companies generating this level oh, of intelligence, really interesting. and that you know previously when we talk about you know state-on-state violence and questions of attribution and intelligence, these are largely coming from government agencies. There's a new book out about this. this yeah, <laughs> oh, once again, you can't help yourself. No,
3: I'm just you brought it up. <laughs> Wait, my book or yours? Well, kind of both. Yeah,
1: it's mine.
3: You what do? about
4: my book? What about, oh, it's what about not your book?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Cam,
3: wrote a book, too. Did you? Yeah, it
2: has nothing to do with the future of violence or war. Well, you never
3: told me you wrote a book. But it did predict the Egyptian revolution.
2: Hmm. Sure, yes, yes it did. <laughs> God, Absolutely, go buy it, it right now. It's more important
3: book than all of ours. <laughs> um, anyways,
1: yeah, so future of, yeah, intelligence has now become uh, It's the future business. of at war. It is the future of the future of violence at war, uh, violence, violence at war in yeah. Egypt, mm. and gay marriage, <laughs> and Demosclerosis. <laughs>
4: and political <laughs> realism. Yes, yeah. it's, it's all yeah. my latest free ebook from Brookings. Oh, okay.
2: That's a a go corruption. <laughs> God, <laughs> Not knows. exactly. It's the pro-corruption <laughs> Not <argument>.
1: exactly. <laughs> all right, we're going to move on to uh, object lessons uh, tomorrow. Why don't you go first?
2: Okay, so this is the time of year when. Uh, when uh, most of the art um, platforms in D.C. announced their fall seasons, and so my mailbox has been filling up with um, announcements of the fall season at the Kenning Center and the Washington Performing Arts Society. And I, I was delighted in the mail to see that Steve Martin and the Steve Canyon Rangers are coming to play oh, isn't in that, Washington. Uh,
1: uh, Edie there?
2: He did a great album with Edie Brickell. OK Everybody knows Steve Martin, an amazing comedian, great actor, playwright, art collector. And banjo player yes and in the last few years this Renaissance man has been uh, playing a lot of banjo with his band the steep Canyon Rangers now how is this relevant to rational security you might ask
1: tell us
3: tell us
2: <laughs> in addition of course to the fact that I'm a Steve Martin fan um, one of the uh, first big hits for Steve Martin and the steep Canyon Rangers uh, is a song called atheists ain't got no songs <laughs> Uh, they do a lot of bluegrass. A lot of bluegrass is gospel, oh. and uh, and so Steve Martin wrote this wonderful song, uh, "Atheists Ain't Got No Songs," and I was going to propose this as a potential anthem for the Rational Security Podcast because we spend so much time talking about jihadi terrorism uh, and uh, and these religiously motivated um, violent movements that maybe we just need an atheist anthem.
1: Wow. I mean, and, and Sophia Yam would, like, no longer be our...
2: No, no, there's theme music. Oh. And then there's, you know, a, a pep rally kind of song.
1: Oh, I see. Sort of like our uh, our anthem, yeah. But what yeah. does it have to do with rational security?
2: Well, to fight jihadi Tammy terrorism, we need more atheists, maybe.
1: Oh, I see. Now that's the controversial point. I see. comes out. I see. You're just espousing atheism. I was just atheism. trying to sneak
2: that in under the wire, yeah.
1: Well, there goes our funding from the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right, I, I'm I'm willing to listen to it. All right, well, we'll put it up on the website. I'm not so much an atheist or. I'm just I'm just ambivalent. I just I don't have a strong opinions on that. But I like Steve Martin. I like
2: Steve Martin it's a, too. It's a funny song. It's an excellent song, and it will
3: be on our website later today.
1: All right, Ben, what is your objet?
3: My objet is an anti-aircraft gun. Uh, the New York Times... We're not going to pretend you actually... We're not going to pretend the, we, we, it's a North Korean anti-aircraft weapon.
2: Which we definitely don't keep here at Brookings. The
3: New York Times reports this morning that the second highest officer in North Korea's military was recently executed as a traitor for showing disrespect for the nation's leader, Kim Jong-un, South Korean intelligence officials told lawmakers here on Wednesday. General Hyun yong Choi... The Minister of the People's Armed Forces was believed to have been executed with an anti aircraft gun in Pyongyang around April 30th. So I. Is um, that a
2: new card in the clue, clue game? Murdered with an anti aircraft
3: gun? Yeah. Murdered by <laughs> Kim, <Pyongyang>. Kim Jong il <laughs> in Pyongyang with the anti aircraft gun. I think this object lesson just speaks for itself. I've got nothing more to say about it. It's number just, two on our worst ways to die. It's, uh, it's got to be number train one. Crashes,
1: on well, this is worse than a train crash.
3: Yeah, yeah. it's worse yeah. than a train crash. It's got to be worse than anything else we're it's, talking it's about. It's also,
1: A, a thing in North Korea. It's common. and Well, I mean, not common, but it's, it's frequently done for, for executing uh, government officials and corrupt bureaucrats, I think. And B... His show of disrespect, at least one of the reported offenses, was falling asleep. falling asleep at a rally.
2: We can all sympathize.
1: I mean, we would be killing Ruth Bader Ginsburg for falling asleep at, at the this State of the Union totally. address. With,
3: with, and she was drunk. With an anti-aircraft
1: gun. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's baffling. Yeah, they're right. There's nothing else to say about no. it.
2: New meaning to the words firing squad do we
3: have one more horrible way to die
1: Shane? we do it is by drone strike and and not by watching my object lesson which is the new movie good kill uh which is coming out on friday i saw a screening of it the other night uh it stars ethan hawk
2: love I, ethan hawk love
1: ethan hawk i've loved Ethan forever really and dead poet society that's oh. where our relationship began
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: with um, drone strike What's that? Was there a drone strike in Dead, dead, dead Poets Poet society? society? No. no. <laughs> Would well, that be a good update? Like a mashup, right? Mm. Dead, dead, dead drone, drone strike society, uh, <clears throat> directed by Andrew Nickel, who directed Gattaca and a number of other good films. Um, I have to say, and I, I'm writing a little piece about this today, but uh, two things. One, I was like pleasantly surprised because as soon as I hear that, you know. Filmmakers generally are taking on like the subject of drone strike. I'm expecting just this two-hour sort of like preachy sermon on how terrible drone strikes are, or just some really ham-handed and ham-fisted embrace of drone strikes. And sort of how awesome.
2: American sniper style,
1: right? Yeah, which I did not see. But I mean, my, but yeah. So we'll go with that sort of line of critique. This was a very nuanced film, and it was actually quite um, uh, ambiguous in the course of the film, where exactly the filmmaker comes down, and where did Ethan Hawke come down? on this. mean interesting. he plays this F-16 fighter jock who kind of reluctantly decides to go do a tour as a drone operator and it finds himself being stuck there and he can't get out. And while he's not happy about killing women and children and innocent people, um, why he's really depressed and coming undone is because he's not in the cockpit anymore where he was getting a rush out of risking his life every mm. time he flew. So it's not that he's having some sort of moral crisis about killing. It's about that he's a junkie for danger, and the drones just aren't doing it. But interestingly, in the Q and A afterwards, somebody was was pressing him on his position.
2: Ethan uh, Hawker, the director.
1: Hawk, yeah, the director kind of dodged it.
3: And notice how Shane slipped in here that he he got. You were
4: hang in out a with, room with Ethan. That he got yes. To hang
1: out with there, Are there It was a during a Q and A, which was moderated by Chris Matthews, because apparently after watching two hours of people getting blown up, we hadn't been punished enough. Ooh,
2: um, three.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah, I mean, whatever. I mean, he didn't even really need to be there. They just talked and answered questions. They had a chess clock debate. You don't need moderators. Um, uh, say that again. Chess clock debate. You Why don't do, You don't need, need moderators. Thank you, Shane. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but no, somebody asked me about uh, Ethan's Hawk's position, and he made the point that um, in the fire bombings of Dresden uh, and the carpet bombings of Cambodia, an astonishing number of innocent people were killed indiscriminately. And we knew we were doing it. And that with drones, he called it, I think, a great step forward in that drones can precisely target people and that while, yes, innocent people die, hugely smaller numbers of innocent people die. That is not... And I think I was biased in just assuming that Ethan Hawke would have a generally politically liberal position on drones. That is an argument that I hear from people who are defending drones and are trying to put it on a humanitarian footing, both in terms of its complying with international law of armed conflict and also being a humane way of killing people insofar as that war can be humane. I was just really surprised to hear him say that. Um, not A, because I figured he was just a Hollywood liberal, and B, because the movie doesn't really make clear um, what the position is, but it seemed like he kind of came out of it as he, Ethan Hawke, digs
3: drones. Hollywood conservatives, you know, no, there's no, no taking lawyers. over.
2: Ethan Hawke, Hollywood with a brain. I like it. But I also, as you were talking, Shane, I I had an image of the next Ethan Hawke movie that's going to tackle the next phase of warfare, which is autonomous weapons. Mm. So it's going to be a sort of uh, Gattaca Terminator mashup with Ethan Hawke as the Terminator. I like this. But no stars. (laughs) I
1: like it. All right. That brings us to the end of our show this week. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can go to our website, spaghettionthewallproductions.com, and find our whole roster of great podcasts, including the chess clock debates. Which need no moderator. No introduction and no moderators. They introduce themselves, in fact. The debaters are quite capable of doing so. Uh, it's a great show, and you should be listening to it. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Security. Mm-hmm. You can find us uh, wherever you download podcasts, and when you're there, please do leave a comment and a rating. That's the best way to let other people know about our show. Our editor is Jen Powell. Our music was performed this week by Babies in Toilet Bowls.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is a
1: great name for a band. It's an band. awesome name for a band. I think Wells Bennett was in that band once. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, of course, performed, as always, by the wonderful mm-hmm. Sophia Yan. Mm-hmm. Our thanks to her off in Hong Kong. Uh, I am Shane Harris. On behalf of Jonathan Roush and my friends Ben and Tamara Wittes, I'll see you next week.